We are talking today with Victor Zhao, the president of the U.S. National Academy of Medicine, and we're talking about one aspect of recent discussions about diversity, equity, and inclusiveness in healthcare, in which he and I have a shared interest in, the path to leadership for Asian Americans. I think all of our listeners know that Victor rose to prominence as chairman of medicine at Brigham Women's Hospital and then CEO of Duke University Medical Center. And part of his success was driven by his research career in vascular biology. And ordinarily, his favorite topics tend to be on issues like societal implications of scientific advances. But recently, Victor and I were co-authors on a paper in NGM Catalyst about how Asian Americans, especially East Asians, like Victor and myself, are underrepresented in, in, in the senior management of our major healthcare delivery organizations. Even though these ethnic groups are heavily represented in the healthcare workforce and in our medical schools. Our take is that this underrepresentation says something about diversity and inclusiveness in healthcare leadership that goes beyond East Asians. That is the conversation that we'd like to have today. Now, Victor, as we have discussed, you don't particularly like talking about yourself, but still, that seems an appropriate way to begin. I know that you were born in Shanghai, but you had several stopping points along the way before I met you in 1978 when you were chief resident at the Brigham and I was interviewing for internship. Can you give us a quick summary of your path from Shanghai to the Brigham? Well, Tom, thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, podcast. I, I've truly been looking forward to it because I think I picked on the topic that I care a lot about. And increasingly, I'm speaking out about this issue. Certainly, the, uh, the paper that you and I and the Kevin Ropey and Vivian Chern wrote uh, stimulated a lot of thoughts and conversation around East Asian and leadership. So indeed, I was born in Shanghai, and uh, Sandy and I left when I was a young age of five. So we really escaped communist China and ended in Hong Kong. And the early years was very difficult for my family. We were living in one room with no bathroom, no kitchen, even no bed. We slept in cots. And then, of course, eventually we were able to do all right. But I've witnessed a lot of sufferings and uh, disparities as I grew up. So that had a lot of influence on me. So I went to McGill for undergraduate in medical school. And uh, through a somewhat circuitous, I ended up at the Brigham. Very fortunate. And I say to this date, it's because people at the Brigham, like Jim Brownwell, Marshall Wolf, have the courage to say this person's different with potential in him, we'll take him in. And uh, so being the first Chinese, or for that matter, Asian American as chief resident, I thought that's when I met you. It was an interesting experience because I did not go to Harvard. I did not go to the United States, different culture. It was only around seven, eight years since I came to the North America. And one year when I came to the United States, when I got into the Brigham and then became a chief resident. So it was still a new culture for me. 
And, you know, so it was challenging. Uh, let me uh, say the following first. The reason I don't like to talk about this, although I'm now getting increasingly more comfortable, is my Chinese culture. You know, we tend to be more modest and more humble and less about ourselves, but about others. So getting me to talk about this increasingly is a good thing because now I feel I've got something to contribute to talk about my background. So thank you, Tom. Well, I'm so glad you're willing to, to do that and because how it felt on the way really does matter. Uh, when I met you, I was struck because you were the first Chinese chief resident that I had met in any of my interviews. And in fact, a very important factor for me in making up rank list. You were certainly the first Chinese chair of medicine at the Brigham. Today, there are many more Asians in those kinds of roles than there were in the past. And, and no one finds it, uh an Asian or East Asian leader at that level unusual, but what was it like for you to be on the road to being the first? Uh, you feel like you didn't fit in at various points. Yeah, Tom, that was in 78, a long time ago, and the world has changed dramatically. So I was definitely the minority and maybe we still are minorities. But that being said, I um, sometimes felt overwhelmed. I was still learning the culture and language. You know, I was saying the other day, I never really understood what teeing up an issue is or all for, you know, all part for the cause and things like that, which American colloquialism that if you learn English, you don't learn this. So to even have a conversation as one of the Americans is not always easy. But, you know, I've compensated. You know, so how do I compensate? Well, to begin with, you know, as Asian American or as Asian, there were no role models for me to easily look at. And there's nobody I can easily turn to except people who are just good mentors. But they obviously don't understand fully the way I feel. But I come to say by working harder. I felt I had to prove myself. And as you remember, as chief resident, I was always the first in the morning before people start making rounds. And last one out, I used to run home to have dinner and come back and make rounds for every patient who was admitted with the residents, admitted went home. And I felt then, and maybe it's not always a good role model to be working that way, that that's what I need to do. To show, by example, how hard I can work, I'm ready to, in fact, uh, help everybody else. My off hours, I spend reading, making sure I was up to date, literature, and knowledgeable. You know, I have to live with all these Ivy League white guys who are very self-confident. And so there's a lot of kind of adjustment I had to make. But I tell you, I think the main reason I succeeded is because of the environment. That being said, the Brigham, Osho, and Gene created an environment, which you know, is really equitable. They're colorblind. And you have quoted me to say, when I interviewed you, say, you don't get ahead here, get ahead here by playing golf with the chairman. 
Dr. Baldwin doesn't care what color you are, doesn't care if you're purple. He cares is whether you're smart and work hard. And if you are, and you have any kind of luck at all, things tend to work out well here. And that's what happened to me. Well, I think our, our big question really is, is what you went through and your path to success uh, in your training days, is there something analogous to that for young Asian and other underrepresented minorities on their path to success in management and, and the C-suites? Now, yeah. you wrote in our article on NGM Catalyst, uh, because our colleague, Kevin Volpe, who is half Chinese, had made the observation that there were so few Asians in the C-suites. And then when we collected some data, we found that he was right. Asians constitute about 20% of physicians, but only 6% of hospital C-suites. And East Asians are just over 1% in the hospital C-suites. The same kind of trend exists in other business sectors as well. So as someone who bucked that trend, you know, first at the chief resident level, then at the leading of a huge organization level, uh, and became CEO. What is your take on these data? Is it just a matter of time for the rising number of Asians uh, in the rank make their way in the C-suites, or are the cultural barriers that create what some call bamboo ceiling have to be taken on? Well, you know, I. Um think there are several factors at play. Uh, there's no question I'll take to show that fewer Asians by far, or Asians as a whole, are selected leaders compared to uh, the number of positions, workforce that we represent, some 20%, or the number of white uh, colleagues who got selected. And everybody knows that. That's not surprising. I would say one factor clearly is the way that we are perceived and perhaps even the way we approach things. So let me continue the journey from chief residency. It was the story didn't end there. After all, I have to continue to work hard to be recognized. And as you said, I became the CEO of Duke Health System which employed 25,000 people. You know, the medical system was a $4 billion organization at the time. It's even bigger now. And so here I am as the CEO. How do I do this? And of course, my role models are all white males and, uh, and how they approach things. I still remember very early in my CEO career, it is kind of like 360. And uh, someone said to me privately, you know, Victor, you're not as open as you should be. You know, us talk about our family issues, our challenges, you're very reserved. And then we took a mixed test, which looked at, uh, you know, what are my fundamental, uh, I guess, characteristics. And guess what? I was an introvert. And of course, many people say, Victor, introvert. Well, really what happens is, my strict asked me instinctively what I would do if I was faced with the circumstance. And I answered like an Asian, but I compensated over the years in thinking about what people expect me to do. And therefore, 
a lot more closer to stereotypes of white leadership that I think people expect. So coming back full circle, when you asked me that question earlier, I'll say that what I've learned is along the way is increasingly adapting my style to understand what's needed to be successful or to lead successfully. Not so much personal success, but to be able to do my job. Now, your question is interesting because <clears throat> what it means is that the fundamental characteristics and that we have as Asians don't count as much in this society in terms of leadership expectation. What we call stereotyping. After all, the entire ecosystem is mainly white and predominantly male. So frequently, this idea of a bamboo ceiling is recognized by expectation of what a leader should look like, it should act like. And, you know, I would argue uh, that there are many positive aspects of Asian that can be a good leader. But when the selection of leader, people are greatly influenced by what they believe leadership should look like. Uh, you know that in our paper, we talk about Russell Reynolds, the study, and they say that the diversity C-suite is limited by narrow definitions of good leaders. Now, Russell Reynolds have a uh, leadership, leadership span model, which they have categories of C-suite leadership competencies, talk about soft and loud qualities. The soft qualities are pragmatic, reluctant, vulnerable, and connected. Loud ones are disruptive, risk-taking, rogue, and galvanizing. And of course, U.S. executives tend to score much higher on the hard qualities or the loud qualities. And I think that's where we're talking about. Uh, that is, intrinsically, we have certain approaches we do need to adapt because we're living now in a you know different world. I'm talking we as Asians. That being said, I think decision makers, leadership need to also understand the importance of diversity and the qualities that can be brought to the table, which are not necessarily according to their stereotypes, but that can add tremendously to the good of the organization and the nation. Uh, those stereotypes that you mentioned, of course, not only work against Asians, but they can cause terrific female leaders and leaders in other, other underrepresented minorities from being recognized. We all know that diversity in leadership teams leads to better organizations because you have fewer blind spots collectively. So we know this is strategic, not just the politically correct thing to do. So what advice at this point in history would you give boards and leadership about diversity in general and Asians in particular? Tom, I want to make sure that I did answer your question. I do answer your question about what I tell young people. First of all, I think generations have passed. I'm an immigrant. I really came with a strong cultural background, which I had to adapt. I think that the subsequent generations are a lot more adaptive. So I think that, you know, blending in an Asian culture with the expected Western uh, approach 
it's probably the right thing to do because we can actually bring the best of both worlds to that, uh, you know, what we do. So I would say to the young people, just be yourself, understanding assertiveness is good, but self-reflection is also good. How do you actually manage to first get the voice heard, but at the same time, really believe and move forward with your true beliefs and try to use your leadership platform to do the right thing. Now, as far as advising board leadership, people who decide on what they should select as leaders, I think I think your point is really important. That is, when everybody's talking about diversity, you know, they have to recognize that diversity is necessary as measured by numbers, but it's not alone to create a just and inclusive culture. That they really need to think through more what do they mean by diversity, how do they put diversity into action, so that the diverse opinions and perspectives can create a just and inclusive culture. I think the second thing we wrote in our report is to say every leader is at risk for blind spots. I certainly always at risk for blind spots. And so your own experience, your own intrinsic implicit bias, your own idea what a leader should look like should probably be examined every so often understand that these could be wrong assumptions and this could be a blind spot. And finally, appreciate that the concepts of leadership and stereotypical traits of leaders that we now have among existing leaders may limit our efforts for cultural inclusiveness and operational success. That is, we have to re-examine and be more open-minded and to read about inclusiveness. And that is going to make the organization better and all of us better leaders. Well, Victor, I want to thank you for these insights. They're, they're, of course, of great interest to me personally, but I think to many of our readers and listeners, uh, regardless of what their backgrounds are, because uh, all of us want to make healthcare better. Uh, it's striking to me that 43 years after meeting you for the very first time, almost to the date, uh, uh, fate brings us back together talking about this issue, which was striking to me on that day. And I do believe that the arc of history is heading in the right direction. Our cultures are becoming more inclusive and diverse, and healthcare is getting better. But we have a way to go. And I think that your comments today your the, and story that you share are going to help move things in the right direction. And I expect that we'll be checking in with you along the way. Tom, before I say goodbye, I have to say you are too humble and modest because you too are a great model of Asian Americans who's uh, done the right thing, have made impact, and of course, and we will call it successful. Uh, you have been a great role model for many, as you know, and you live, you know, you, you live what you believe in, in terms of your work life, your family life, the diversity that you brought to it. So I want to thank you too. Just make sure that we recognize what you've done. Well, I at least know how to act humble. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again, Victor. Thank you. You take care now.